Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show today. We're going to be talking to Gabriel Shifton in a moment. He's the brother of Julian Assange, the UK Home Secretary, has ruled that Assange can be extradited later in the show. We're also going to talk about the unrest in Ecuador. We're going to talk about the upcoming elections in both France and in Colombia, both of which are kind of on a knife's edge. Emily, what else we got? We have like an international journey today. We do. We're going around the world. We're going around the world. Well, we're going to get into the new Hunter Biden audio leak, uh, which you may not have heard about because the legacy media has had little interest in covering it. We're going to talk to we're going to talk about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis railing against vaccines for babies and toddlers. And as Ryan mentioned, we are going around the world to give you an update on the French and Colombian elections. But first, so Gabriel Shipton joins us here. He's a filmmaker and he is, as I said, the brother of Julian Assange. So. Gabriel, the UK Home Secretary in breaking news this morning just ruled that Assange can be extradited to the United States. He has 14 days to appeal. You know, will, will he appeal? And, and what is the kind of prognosis for that, that, for that appeal and his legal fight going forward? So, yes, uh, Julian will appeal. Yeah, we will be fighting this uh, decision from the UK Home Secretary. Uh, we will appeal to the uh, High Court, we'll apply to, uh, apply to appeal to the High Court and uh, we will be um, bringing up new evidence that has uh, come out uh, since um, the hearings. So things like, um, you know, uh, the CIA plots to kidnap and uh, assassinate Julian uh, in the embassy, spying on his lawyers, spying on his psychologists when he was... Uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy. That will all be part of the uh, application to the appeal at the High Court. Uh, unfortunately, um, the High Court has already ru ruled in favour of the US DOJ on this case. Uh, the Lord Chief Justice uh, was um, the judge on, on, in, on, involved in that ruling. Uh, so that to us is a signal that uh, the, the UK judiciary uh, really want to move this on and, and uh, extradite Julian. So the statement um, from the Home Office is they say the extradition, quote, would be incompatible. They did not find the extradition, quote, would be incompatible with his human rights, including his right to a fair trial and to freedom of expression. And that whilst in the U.S., he will be treated appropriately, including in relation to his health. What do you make of that statement? Are you as confident as the British Home Office um, in, in what they are anticipating? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, if the, the uh, US DOJ gave assurances to the High Court uh, that said Julian would not be kept under SAMS. Uh, but those assurances, uh, the next line after he would not be kept under SAMS was, he can, we, we, we reserve the right to move him uh, at any time into uh, SAMS or, say, a supermax prison. Uh, and it's highly likely uh, Julian will be moved to those because uh, we're dealing with classified information. Uh, it's a national security case. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very likely that he will be moved into those uh, sort of prison conditions uh, that a magistrate found uh, would lead uh, to his suicide, essentially. So um, those uh, statements from the UK Home Secretary, uh, you know, they're, we don't really, uh, you know, well, basically what's happened is if you're a journalist, uh, you publish information on uh, war crimes, on corruption, uh, on torture in the UK, uh, you can now be extradited uh, to another country for doing your job. And for people who haven't been following this very closely, they may assume that 
because he's charged under the Espionage Act that the charges might have something to do with, with Russia or with 2016 or the DNC or something, something else nefarious rather than just simply the act of receiving information from a source and, and publishing that information. But in fact, this case it strictly revolves around these, these 2010, 2011 era lease. Can you, can you talk a, bit, a little bit about what he's actually charged with? So uh, Julian is charged with what journalists do every day, and that's um, uh, sourcing information uh, and then publishing it. So uh, the alleged source, obviously, is Chelsea Manning. Um, in uh, 2010, uh, she leaked uh, you know, uh, a trove of documents uh, to WikiLeaks, um, the Iraq war logs, the Afghan war diaries, um, uh, Guantanamo Bay detainee files, and uh, cable set of diplomatic cables, 250,000 diplomatic cables. So those these charges uh, relate to those leaks and the publishing of those leaks. Uh, the others who published these things are the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, uh, De Spiegel in Germany, The Guardian in the UK, uh, and none of these uh, corporate media institutions uh, have been charged with espionage. It is uh, only Julian uh, who, who is charged um, under these, under these uh, espionage laws, which is the first time a uh, publisher has ever been charged. Usually uh, the Espionage Act is reserved for leakers, uh, such as Daniel Hale, uh, but this is the first time that it's been used uh, against a publisher. What's your expectation for how this will unfold if uh, Julian is, in fact, extradited to uh, the United States? Well, you know, uh, as I said earlier, um, there are there were plots, you know, within the CIA confirmed by over 30 uh, intelligence community, former and current intelligence community sources, uh, plots to murder and kidnap Julian, um, uh, the plots to kidnap him went as high as the White House. Uh, you know, statements have been made by uh, Secretary of States that, uh, you know, previous Secretary of State, like, why can't we just drone this guy? So... We're really uh, fearful that if Julian is extradited, um, that he is not going to be able to kept, be kept safe uh, in, in the U.S. prison system. So that's that. That is our fear uh, as his as his family. And one of the strangest things that you hear about Julian Assange here in the United States is that he is a traitor, which to me never made any sense. He's been to the United States what maybe twice in his entire life uh, for a couple of days at each stretch. You have to be from a country in order to be a traitor to the country. Aside from the fact that it's an absurd charge to begin with, Julian is an Australian citizen. Uh, there, has been, there has recently been a change in government, and I want to uh, put this up here. That the, you know, the, the, so now the, the new government has a different posture towards uh, Julian Assange. The Labor leader, Anthony Al Albanese, had said, at, at, he said at one press conference, enough is enough. I don't have sympathy for many of his actions, but essentially I can't see what is served by keeping him incarcerated. Can you talk a little bit about what, what is public opinion in Australia toward uh, Assange and how is that influencing the Australian government and do they have any leverage with the United States here? Well, you know, public, Julian is uh, extremely popular uh, in Australia, the last poll that was done in one of the national newspapers uh, was done at the end of last year, uh, showed 71% of those people polled agreed with the statement that Julian uh, should be brought home to Australia. So really, uh, the the Prime Minister is just expressing uh, the wishes of the people in this instance. Uh, 
uh, Australia is one of the US's closest allies, and it's also one of the uh, UK's closest allies. They have a AUKUS agreement together, which is a, a, a three-way agreement. Uh, so I think there could be an Australian solution to this. There could be a negotiated solution uh, that is put forward by Australia that could end uh, the persecution of Julian, but also end this attack on, on press freedom. Uh, I think the Prime Minister, you know, we're talking about a Labor government in Australia. Uh, it is a sort of progressive government. So the they're standing on a, a platform of transparency and accountability. And uh, that sort of goes to the heart of what Julian uh, Julian's work has done and uh, reporting is about what journalism is about, you know, um, reporting on government and informing the public uh, about what uh, the government is doing in their name so people can make decisions at the ballot box. And what would a negotiation or how do you think a negotiation would fare under the Biden administration? President Biden still has more than half of his term left in office, so it's likely anything would be negotiated under him. So specifically as it relates to the Biden administration's approach towards Julian, um, how do you think if, if something were to be put on the table between Australia, the UK and the United States um, over the course of the next couple of years, what's your sense of how that might turn out? Well, it, for me, it's simple for, for President Biden. Uh, he could just drop this. The, the Biden DOJ could drop this at any moment. Uh, it's, it's that simple for them. Uh, this prosecution was brought uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, so uh, it could be disposed of as a Trump-era uh, attack against the free press. And this is a sort of once-in-a-lifetime uh, attack on the First Amendment as well. Uh, so that, that has to be recognised uh, in, in that sense. So I think it'd be fairly simple for uh, President Biden and Attorney General uh, Garland uh, to just drop this and, uh, you know, say, well, look, this was a Trump era prosecution. Um, we are talking about, uh, we, are, we are going to Latin America and saying, uh, you know, we are believers in press freedom as a core tenant of democracy. Uh, we are lecturing, or, you know, we are talking to China and China is saying to us, well, you have a journalist in prison in the UK uh, when, we, when the US talks to them about press freedom. So this is a, a one simple way the Biden administration could say we're serious uh, about press freedom and, and by dropping this case. And what's, what's the timeline? And so I mentioned there's 14 days to appeal. You're going to appeal. How long will, how long will that go on and once that is concluded what's the next step in other words this was a big announcement today one that was expected but a big announcement but what is it what does it mean about the future how long are we how long do you expect until if you lose on every single level that he ends up getting extradited well so uh, the appeal to the high court if appeal if an appeal is even accepted um, will probably heard, be heard later later this year uh, maybe September October uh, then there would be, if that is lost, then there will be um, uh, an application to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, but, you know, I think what's what we've seen today from this decision is that the UK judiciary, uh, the UK government uh, want to move this along. Uh, they want to get rid of Julian. You know, it's a big problem for them as well. Uh, you know, they've... <laughs> It's a very, uh, you know, they've got a publisher in prison. It's it's not a really good look for them. So they want to move this along. Uh, this decision today shows that. Uh, so I think this could probably move quickly. 
um, more quickly than we think it could. Um, but the legal avenues, are, uh, you know, could be up to a year. Gabriel, how is Julian's condition and how do you think this new battle, this new sort of tug of war uh, will affect it? Well, yeah, Julian's been in a maximum security prison now for, for, for over three years. Uh, so he's there, he's not charged with a crime, uh, he's an innocent man. And this, these conditions are, are wearing him down. In October last year, he had a, a mini stroke. Um, he is not uh, getting uh, better. And, uh, you know, we are fearful that, uh, you know, he won't survive, he won't survive this, um, this fight. I um, mean, you know, he does have a fighting spirit and he's been battling away for the past 11 years uh, where, you know, previously he was detained in the Ecuadorian embassy and previously before that under house arrest. So it is, it is a long ordeal uh, for him and, yeah, it, it is wearing him down. Well, Gabriel, he was also uh, recently married, and I wanted you to pass on our congratulations to him uh, for that. You know, life goes on as long as it continues to go on, and I know you have to mm-hmm. run to another event. Um, but uh, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Thank you. Really appreciate it, as always. And we'll tell you what's on our radars next. Emily, what's on your radar? So yesterday, Elon Musk said he wants four times as many people to use Twitter. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Musk is a net benefit for the company, which, whether we like it or not, is very powerful. Twitter with freer speech is better than Twitter without it. But Twitter doesn't work. It's hurting us, and its problems are foundational. We should want it to wither away. Of all the major social media platforms, Twitter is the most niche. Only a small percentage of the population is among its daily users. I once actually calculated the number to be about 8.2%, and that's already way too much. As of 2018, about a quarter of American adults said they used Twitter, and less than half of that quarter said they used it every day. Now, Musk isn't your average social media baron. He comes to this project with less naivete about tech. Whether you agree with Musk or not, he's not stumbling into space like Mark Zuckerberg stumbled into Facebook. On a Thursday call with Twitter employees, Musk framed his mission in a pretty broad context. Quote, I want Twitter to contribute to a better, long-lasting civilization where we better understand the nature of reality, he said, adding that he wanted Twitter to help people, quote, better understand the nature of the universe as much as it is possible to understand. That mission is complete. As much as it is possible, Twitter is one big case study in human nature, and we failed that test. Without forces that compel us to be good in the physical public square, like face-to-face interaction and local stakes, we turned the dumb bird site into a hellscape. And of course we did. We're humans. We need social guardrails that platforms like Twitter just fundamentally can't provide because they wouldn't be engaging for us. I love the site as a news aggregator. It's made it easier for me to connect with other journalists, with academics, with activists, and with readers and viewers. I have one of those jobs where you almost can't do it without Twitter, unfortunately. But in the aggregate, the ease of access is just not worth the cost. For every feel-good story on Twitter, there are 20 examples of breathless pylons. Studies have found that Twitter 
amplifies moral outrage. But more importantly than that, it's designed to be addictive. Judson Brewer is an addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist who teaches at Brown. He explains Twitter's design well. Quote, from a psychological standpoint, he wrote in 2019, Twitter taps into our natural reward-based learning processes. Trigger, behavior, reward. We have an idea or think of something funny. Trigger. Tweet it out, behavior, and receive likes and retweets, reward. This learning process causes a dopamine rush in reward centers of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. I probably said that incorrectly. The more we do this, the more this behavior gets reinforced, added Brewer, based on the evolutionary adaptive survival process that helps us remember where food is. Our brains are now learning a new habit loop of survival. We can even track our own relevance by the number of impressions, tweets, and followers we have. Twitter does not work without likes and retweets. There are certainly creative or algorithmic tweaks Musk can make to mitigate the site's addictiveness. He's probably thinking uh, in in bigger terms when it comes to solutions than I am. Maybe he thinks a less addictive Twitter would attract a bigger user base. Less addictive is better, but it's still not good. In a conversation on Joe Rogan's show, Musk revealed a really helpful, I think, cornerstone of the way he sees the world. Quote, even in a benign scenario, we are being left behind, he said. So how do you go along for the ride if you can't beat them Join him. That was about AI. He then added, we are already a cyborg to some degree. You've got your phone. You've got your laptop. If you're missing your phone, it feels like missing limb syndrome. He is right, of course. You might call him a realist. I think that perspective actually is, is both realist and kind of defeatist. What does any of this have to do with our immediate well-being, though? Why does it matter to the majority of people who aren't on Twitter? There are two major reasons. First, one of the most powerful people in the world sees you as a potential customer of of an addictive and unhealthy product. And it's a product that we've transferred a huge chunk of our politics and culture onto because the people in urban bubbles who run our politics and culture use it to steer discourse and policy. Cancel culture as we know it would absolutely not have existed without Twitter, which blew up the complaints of local, uh, of vocal minorities into news stories because journalists and publicists would see negative tweets and turn them into headlines, which then set norms. Second, there are well-funded efforts to either create parallel institutions or, like Musk's bid here, revamp the broken ones. I remember asking the CEO of Parler this a year or two ago. Speech standards aside, what are you doing to be better than Twitter. Building back speech-neutral institutions would be an improvement, sure, but accepting that our politics and culture is going to be litigated on addictive digital platforms that warp the discourse is not a satisfactory answer. Why did Twitter employees freak out in some deeply hyperbolic and weird ways after the call yesterday? Partially because addictive social media platforms are making us sick. They're fueling the destructive culture of narcissism that Christopher Lash wrote about all the way back in 1979. Quote, personal relations founded on reflected glory, on the need to admire and be admired, prove fleeting and insubstantial, he observed all that, all that time ago. I want to read one more just great, delicious quote from Culture of Narcissism. Lash wrote, the mass media with their cult of celebrity and their attempt to surround it with glamour and excitement have made Americans a nation of fans, moviegoers. The media gives substance to and thus intensify narcissistic dreams of fame and glory, encourage the common man to identify himself with the stars and to hate the herd and make it more and more difficult for him to accept the banality of everyday existence. Now, 
I sincerely hope Elon Musk can make Twitter better, but there's no version of Twitter that will ever make us better. Ryan, this entire conversation about Twitter seems so myopic to me because when it comes to Elon Musk, all we're talking about is his plans for free speech on the platform. This is a guy who's in charge of SpaceX and Neuralink. He's doing huge things. He's not nearly as myopic as the media, I think, conversation that covers him is. Isn't this a bigger, a much bigger question than the one of speech? And it aren't all of our conversations about these platforms. Do you feel like the conversation about free speech has, has dominated in a way that's almost distracting to some of the deeper problems at play? Well, yes, while also missing the actual conversation about free speech and censorship, <laughs> the, the biggest threat to censorship, obviously, is the Chinese government. Like in, in the world, rel- Absolutely. Rel- like just proportionally, rel- like that is, that is quite obvious. They tried to get... Uh, Twitter to shut down a bunch of accounts in Hong Kong when they were when they were cracking down on dissent there, and Twitter said no, we're not we're not doing that. Elon Musk gets sources and a ton of his material, uh, the financing, etc. Like the links between him and 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 China and the Chinese political economy are intense. Mm-hmm. So how, what's he going to do about that when China comes knocking again and says, oh, we want this dissident in this country's account shut down, or we would like. We'd like to know, actually, what's their address? Can you tell us where they are? Because they have been known to rendition people. They they learn it from the best. Mm -hmm. So we're having this giant free speech conversation, which I think is distracting from the broader conversation, but it doesn't even encompass the entire free speech conversation as it it ought to. Unless you think... Free speech is fine, but it, uh, it, it's okay that uh, you know, we can have somebody who's leveraged by China running the, pla- running the platform. It's like, have, have you thought this through? Seriously like, leveraged by China. I mean, he yeah. just had like a red carpet opening in Xinjiang, of all places. Yeah. Um, no. And, this, and like, nothing against his business practices, etc. I mean, plenty against his business practices, but that's a separate question. <laughs> It, it's okay if you want to be a, a global multi, multi-billionaire and, and be involved with China. That, like, that's how it works. But then to also say that you're going to be this independent, free speech-minded uh, patron of this, of this site just doesn't comport with the reality of how that's going to work. But your, your other point is, is an interesting one, too. But what do we do, what do, we, what do, we do with this, this idea? Because I agree with you. Like, yeah. Twitter's terrible. They're, social media is terrible. Yep. Like, it's, it's, it's ruining people's brains. It's, it's, it's pulling us away from what it means to be human. But what do we do with that? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like the, we're talking about cigarettes, but we're only talking about the filter. Or so, you know what I mean? Like that's it. We're, we're all walking around. We've transferred. And, and cigarettes is not a good one-to-one with social media, except for in the kind of conversation about pub- public health, because we don't use cigarettes to conduct our politics. We don't use right. cigarettes to conduct our interpersonal relationships. And maybe people smoked in the smoke-filled back rooms, but the cigarette wasn't the mechanism of communication. Um, and and so I, it, to me, it's insane. Like when Josh Hawley introduced a bill about infinite scroll, he was like laughed at, like mercilessly mocked. Um, but those are the kinds of solutions that nobody is talking about and that actually tackle the central issue here. Is this a like public... block the scroll after a while, you mean? Yeah, it, like make it, you, you cannot have infinite scroll on your website, basically, so that people can't just keep going and going. There has to be a stopping point. And now... We don't want to obviously copy authoritarian models like in China, which in right China it, with, with its video game problem. Yeah, they, they said kids. Okay, kids, you get what uh, an hour on Friday and an hour on Saturday. Yeah, like the Chinese government told all the kids. 
Well, TikTok like, in China is the the Chinese version. We've talked about this. The Chinese version of TikTok has mandatory pauses um, in huh. between. If you've been watching videos for too long, kids in China, if you're in a certain age range, can only use it during particular hours of the day, and then they intersperse propaganda um, in the children's version of Chinese TikTok as well. So no, good no. way to get the kids to leave TikTok. Right, <laughs> Start yeah, yeah. propaganda at them. Like, Unless all right, fine, I'll put this down. <laughs> it could be really good propaganda. It might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not exactly Nancy Reagan propaganda mm. but um, no so it's that not, nobody's saying that we need to bring that model here but it is but if you're not saying that then what are you saying that businesses this is the whole point right. about Elon Musk to me is like we're not even putting pressure on him to run this platform mm -hmm. responsibly in terms of public health it's we're just having a public speech conversation but like as people in the market we're all so numbed by our addictions to these yeah. products that we're not saying like we don't want this. <laughs> like right. we we need a way. We need an escape. You know, and and Apple kind of understands this and has integrated some of these things into its products, understanding that there's kind of a market desire to see tech companies do that. Right. But this entire media conversation about Elon Musk is completely completely sidestepping, I think, what's a much more important issue. And it's the issue that ends up making a, a healthier marketplace and having a healthier business economy. Right. Because if you, if you don't have any, any of it regulated, then companies will only sell the most addictive exactly. product. Yeah. So if you require some regulation, then that at least gives the millions of people who do want, because they, they, they know that they need their own behavior regulated because they're addicted. Yeah. Or their kids will get addicted. It's like, so it's like, you know, if, if companies wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do parental controls, you would want the government to say no. Yeah. Like you have to do, you have to give parents some say. So maybe it's like that and you just expand it out. I don't know if a single journalist or anybody in public since Musk sort of stepped into this arena has asked him what he's going to do to make Twitter less addictive. Um, what he's going to do to make Twitter, you know what I, like, and right. just talking in terms of like quadrupling the user base is totally the wrong direction. I think, you know, saying you want it to better humanity is great. And, and that's a much better framing than a lot of people in the in Silicon Valley come to these projects with. But I don't understand how you can do that fundamentally uh, with the way Twitter's designed. Just delete it. <laughs> delete it. Really? Just delete it off my phone. We we both should. Maybe yeah. we'll do that like cleansing. I Just, can't. I can't. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> Looking forward to what's on your radar next, Ryan. Ryan, I believe you have an animal-themed radar this week. The best animal, the elephant, <laughs> indeed. So earlier this week, I published a story at The Intercept on the widespread phenomenon of mass dysfunction at progressive organizations across issue areas. The story, called Elephant in the Zoom, looks at the way that progressive nonprofits have increasingly become largely non-functional amid internal turmoil. Now, since the story came out, I've heard countless news stories from people along the same lines. One of the most vivid comes from an activist I've known for a long time who told me that back in the spring of 2021, while the climate debate was heating up around Build Back Better, he reached out to a particular climate group for help with a particular issue that they were having. And he was told that the group was taking the next eight weeks, eight weeks to work on internal issues. Which brings me to another point. So some readers of this story have noted that it fits in well with the bigger narrative we're seeing of worker uprisings everywhere, from Starbucks to Amazon to Kellogg's to coal miners in Alabama. And that unrest is certainly the most exciting thing going on on the left right now. 
And certainly the new militant mood among workers has in fact bled into the nonprofit space. Why wouldn't it? But those other places are still functioning. You know, imagine if you walked into a Starbucks and ordered a coffee and you were told that actually the shop was taking eight weeks to work on internal issues and not serving coffee, but you still owe $6 anyway. Now, if the workers were on strike, great, then you support them, but they're not on strike. So what we're witnessing also can't be disentangled from the great reckoning we've been having over race and gender in the workplace. And indeed, the period right after George Floyd was murdered caused so much turmoil inside organizations that many haven't recovered. Now, some critics of the piece accused it of being anti-union or anti-worker, but that's missing its point. This article was about workplaces because these nonprofits are also workplaces, but the phenomenon I wrote about is prevalent in volunteer groups, on email listservs, in big DM groups, in neighborhood groups, basically anywhere that people gather together and share even a modestly progressive set of social politics. You'll see a similar phenomenon unfold there. What was different about this article was that it looked at what the effect of it has been on these groups' ability to function. Now, the story also reports on an outfit called ReproJobs that has been heavily disruptive in the reproductive rights space with a Twitter and Instagram feed that is widely followed in the industry. ReproJobs is run by two anonymous organizers who work in the reproductive rights field, as well as a third who is willing to be public. So Emily Likens Ellers offered this week to do an interview with me and said she sympathized to a degree with the complaints of some executive directors that a generational divide and a culture that encourages call-outs had made organizations more difficult to manage. She told me, quote, I don't envy anyone who has to manage an organization right now particularly, but I think they would find that they could actually find more resources if they were willing to ally themselves with the union by accepting the union into their space. Now, at the same time, Things are not going well under the current and former executive directors, she noted, saying, quote, if the managers feel like the conditions are becoming unworkable, that means that the workers are doing a good job disrupting the system. And I think that most of these workers right now know that it's toast. We're screwed. Roe is going to fall any day now, and we are going to have to set up bail funds, unquote. Now, that sense of failure has produced a, fear, a fearful response, she said. She said, quote, People are just trying to grab control where they can and making sure that they have a severance when they lose their job in two weeks or whatever. That has been on the forefront of most workers' minds that I've spoken with. They just want to pay their bills after row falls, unquote. Now, some of the executive directors and organization leaders that I spoke to put the situation in dire terms. And I want to read a few of these and then get Emily's take on this whole thing. So one said, to be honest with you, this is the biggest problem on the left over the last six years. This is so big and it's like abuse in the family. It's the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And you have to be super sensitive about who the messengers are, unquote. Here's another. So much energy has been devoted to the internal strife and internal BS that it's had a real impact on the ability for groups to deliver. It's been huge, particularly over the last year and a half or so, the ability for groups to focus on their mission, whether it's rep reproductive justice or jobs or fighting climate change, unquote. These reckonings have coincided with a belated appreciation for diversity in the upper ranks of progressive organizations. Now, the mid-2010s saw an influx of women into top roles for the first time, many of them white, followed more recently by a slew of black and brown leaders at most major organizations. 
One I spoke with compared the collision of the belated respect for black leaders and the upswell of turmoil inside institutions with the, quote, hollow prize thesis. The most common example of the hollow prize is the victory in the 1970s and 1980s of black mayors across the country just as cities were being hollowed out and disempowered. Or, for instance, salaries in the medical field collapsed just as women began graduating into the field. So one executive director told me, quote, I just got the keys and y'all are going to come after me on this. He said, it's white supremacy culture. It's urgent. No, it's election day. We can't move that day. Just do your job or go somewhere else, he said. Being black has by no means shielded executive directors or their deputies from charges of facilitating white supremacy culture. Quote, it's hard to have a conversation about performance, said one manager. I'm as woke as they come, but they'll say he's black, but he's anti-black because he fired these black people, unquote. The solution, he said, I buy them to leave. I just pay them to leave. So, Emily, do you... Are, is the right confronting this turmoil inside institutions, or is, this, or is there something peculiar about the way that it's unfolding inside progressive organizations? Because you're seeing it not, it's not limited to the progressive space, major corporations, the, the, the tech sector, like lots of places are seeing this. What about inside, say, like AEI or the Heritage Foundation or the Federalist? <laughs> no, actually, and that's an interesting question because one of the big um, one of my big takeaways from your story is how closely it mirrored the leaks that we have seen from major corporations, that this is happening maybe most acutely in the progressive space, but it is more broader in the culture. It's way more widespread. It's at tech companies. It's at banks. It's, at, it's really everywhere, except I haven't seen much of it on the right. And what's interesting is that it does seem to be almost that we've pathologized or we've allowed ourselves to accept that being uh, maybe bad at your job for certain reasons is an excuse and you we've given this idea that like it's a it's some sort of pathology or it's some sort of um, identity that just it's plainly like the guy saying right there you're called anti-black if you're black and you fire black workers it's is crazy I mean you can't even you you cannot control for performance. You cannot um, meaningfully like, actually enforce performance standards because the rebuttal is going to be, well, this is, you, you use the shield of identity. And it's crippling, not just progressive organizations, but I think it's crippling our ability as a broader society to just function. To, like when we're giving out vaccines um, with racial, like, racial standards who can get it first. Um, there's just certain things that, I, I mean, I think back to the Katie Herzog story from last summer about how uh, in emergency rooms, there was this push in 2020 um, in one particular place to, to keep police out of emergency rooms, but police actually protect people from criminals who come back to like finish the job. Mm -hmm. We can't function if we're weaponizing identity at every turn instead of actually being able to adjudicate performance and adjudicate uh, value. And it's a tricky question because, obviously, several decades ago, discrimination in the workplace was intense. And it is not gone. Absolutely. Like, there yeah. still is discrimination in the workplace. And so every time that somebody says, uh, I got a bad performance review because this is discrimination against me, doesn't mean that they're wrong. Like, sometimes they're, sometimes they're right. Right. And so, but then if you have people who genuinely are 
you know, doing a, doing a poor job at work and are hiding behind that, then it makes it more difficult uh, for, for people who are genuinely working against discrimination in the workplace to, to bring those complaints forward. And, and, it, and it, the fact that it's not hitting right-wing institutions you know, really does, I think, prove that there is a, that a lot of this is rooted in a, a real and needed reckoning mm-hmm. across the across the culture, whereas, like, Federalists are like, no, we don't. You're saying we're just letting sexism fester. And <laughs> well, also, you, you guys have less racial diversity, probably, in, at AEI, let's say. Or, uh, I don't know about AEI. I mean, I haven't, I've interned there, but I haven't worked there a long time. I mean, I'm just picking, I'm not picking on AEI. Like, right. I'm just picking out a right-wing institution that, like, Maybe. There's been, I, there has been. That's a, changed a lot, though, yeah. I would say, in, in the last five years in particular. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so maybe you're going to start to see, because you're going to have, like, like, a lot of white managers are, like, do have unconscious bias and do discriminate against black workers. Like, that's a, that, is, that is a real thing. And so, but the, then the question becomes, how do you deal with that? And the, this, this same executive director that I quoted earlier had said, you know what, the most vocal people in my organization when it comes to race are white. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know there's something else. There's something else going on here. What, why, is it, why, why is it the, the white yes. workers? No, absolutely. I, I hear that over and over again. And your story reinforced that too. Um, and it, oh, I mean, it's amazing. I remember watching in 2020, um, I was doing some reporting down in BLM Plaza and I watched a, a white woman in Lululemon yoga pants shout in the face of this working class black female cop that she was racist over and over and over again, berating mm. her during the height of COVID within inches of her face, telling her that she was racist. Uh, she's a, a working class woman. And because she's a cop, this white woman in hundred dollar leggings felt entitled to shout that she's a racist in her face over and over again. I mean, it's it's just completely nuts. But I, one thing I do see on the right is the a, a little bit of with younger employees, younger people in the movement adopting maybe the that mindset that you can sort of weaponize different pathologies or different um, experiences to mask poor performance. Um, and you do see that on the right. I, I see that. I don't see the like, politicization or the identity stuff so much, but I see like a little bit of, I don't want to call it like the cliched victim mentality, but people more likely to sort of try and exploit their role. And the real victims of all of that are the genuine, like the biggest victims are the genuine victims of discrimination in all of mm. this, because it's way harder as a manager when you're trying to, um, when you're listening to all of these claims about sexism or bigotry, discrimination in any form, it's actually hard to figure out which ones are legitimate in some cases because there's like there are a lot of people come to you with a lot of different workplace problems now, and I would think the biggest victims of this are the ones that are, are facing genuine discrimination who may actually even be less inclined to report it because they don't want to be lumped in um, with you know that sort of crowd where they feel like people are exploiting things, yeah. experiences. And so, I mean, the bottom line to me is that if people believe that organizing into a group is an important way to, to flex power and to make the world a better place, then you have to figure out how to actually function as a group. Yeah. If you don't believe that that is important, then fine. Blow them all up. Mm-hmm. But if you do think it matters, if, if, if collective action matters, 
and you've got to figure out how to act collectively. This is the last thing I'll say. I think that's completely accurate. Um, but it gets into this vicious cycle where you're going to see the same things in the unions, and you probably already have in some cases. And um, the, the last thing I'll say is that's why we need to have consensus definitions. And our definitions in the past were not right. Like We did not define racism and sexism appropriately in the past. But we have better definitions and consensus definitions now. And when you broaden them, not only can we not communicate, not only can we not function, but we cheapen the, the real serious offenses um, and make it harder for the victims of those offenses to uh, face justice and to, to find justice. All right, and stick, stick around. We'll have more rising uh, right after this. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is saying that he is not going to uh, have ordering COVID-19, not going to be ordering COVID-19 vaccines for young children. This is even after the FDA um, unanimously endorsed Pfizer and Moderna shots for babies and children under the age of five years old. So he's saying Florida, you can see it in that uh, Politico headline there, is, quote, affirmatively against COVID-19 vaccines for young kids. Ryan, uh, Rand Paul pressed Dr. Fauci on this yesterday, and Fauci basically admitted that there isn't all of the evidence yet to suggest we do know, to borrow a phrase, affirmatively, that uh, the vaccines are effective for people in a certain age cohort. What do you make of DeSantis standing uh, with this decision down in Florida, at least just on the state level, not the national level? Right. And as, as he added, He's not banning people from right. getting it, although I, I could see like a push eventually in that direction. Uh, but right now he's saying, look, it's a personal choice if, if you want to give your kid under five the, vac- the vaccine. The FDA has now approved it, and so you, it, you can get it you know, through a doctor or through some other mechanism, but Florida is not going to be kind of helping assist in that direction. And the, I think one of the points that Fauci was making here is that because and particularly this new variant is is so you know mild relative to previous variants and it's and also mild when it comes to uh, you know the people under 5 yep like people who are you know you know there are still a lot of people who are at very real risk and people are still dying of this uh, but people who are you know 6 months to 5 years old have such mild cases that in order for the vaccine to be proven effective, it has to demonstrably make those mild cases even milder without having any side effects that counteract right. how, how... So if, if the, even, if it gives you, if, even if the vaccine gives you a little fever, gives a certain percentage of kids a little fever, you're like, well, the, the uh, virus gave a fever to X percentage. So you start comparing it. And then... If, if, you, if you pull in long COVID and say, well, you're less like, let's, let's say that you agree that you're less likely to have long-term implications from the vaccine than from, the, than from getting the virus, we don't have enough data for either of those questions yet mm-hmm. because it's only 2022. Right. And this thing came in 2020. So how are we going to know what the effect is? five years from now. And long COVID and long mRNA, by the way, is still something that I've heard from parents. It just sort of, it's that lingering concern that we don't know what these mRNA vaccines are going to do 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road. And we only have two years, not even two years of them being in use. And people are still 
like existentially nervous about not knowing the answer to that question. Whether or not you think there's there's good science bearing out the safety in the long term, which a lot of scientists obviously do think there is, you can understand why parents in particular would be nervous about infants and toddlers. And it'd be one thing if it was the type of vaccine where you you take it and then you don't get exactly. So yeah, but that's not that's not the type of vaccine we're dealing with right now. We're doing the, we're dealing with the type of vaccine where um, it, it, re, it reduces your, the severity of your symptoms. Right. Like that seems to be pretty well accepted. There are plenty of people who are like going to scoff at that, but that's, that's broadly accepted at right. this point that it's going to reduce, it's likely to reduce the severity of your symptoms. Uh, do we know how that relates to long COVID? There, there are some efforts to figure out whether or not your, the, your symptoms and how severe they are are correlated with whether or not you're going to wind up with long COVID. But those studies aren't conclusive at this point yet. You, you have some people say, you know, you can actually have a mild case and then you can have long COVID. Or you can have a terrible case and not have long COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, do, I do think it's fair to say, leave, leave this to parents at, yeah. the, at, this, at this point. And what he's saying is literally just that we're not going to have any state programs pushing this. He's saying you can do it if you want, as, mm-hmm. as you noted. And I want to be clear, I didn't mean to conflate what uh, DeSantis was talking about with what Fauci was talking about and Dr. That and Senator these, Paul was, were talking about. What were they about. talking about? So Paul asked him um, if there is enough evidence to prove that booster shots actually lower the rate of hospitalization or death in children. Uh-huh. And Fauci's response was, right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that's the case. Right. So it's, it's about boosters, but I think the same kind of principle applies. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, we've, we've said that it's been approved by the companies that stand to make money off of it. Um, and you know, we have research that indicates it's at least safe. Um, but again, Ron DeSantis, I don't know why it's controversial for him simply to say we're leaving it up to parents. There's not a ton of evidence that this is going to be have widespread severity right. or going to spread from infants and toddlers in a way that is like incredibly uh, detrimental. I don't. I, I genuinely don't understand why this is controversial. If anything, to me, it sounds like a good way to handle it. Right, and, and the booster question is kind of is the same is a similar version of, of what I was saying. So it's yes. like imagine that you're eight, you, you are comparing a thousand seven year olds who are vaccinated with a thousand seven year olds who are vaccinated and boosted. Yeah. And then you try to compare the severity of the symptoms of, of those who get COVID against each other. And you can imagine that you're you're very unlikely to see significant enough differences because the seven year olds who are vaccinated are going to have a pretty are generally going to have a pretty uh, mild case, and if a few of them have some uh, reaction to the vaccine, then you then you factor that against the ones who did slightly better. And so yeah, you can imagine why Fauci would say we don't have data yet mm-hmm. accumulated that that proves that doing this is effective. And also, they haven't yet kind of recalibrated the vaccine yep. for this variant. Like that was when it, when it originally came out, they're like that's that's the genius of mRNA. And to their credit, they whipped this thing together mm-hmm. extremely fast. You know, people were saying it takes five years for a vaccine or whatever. Boom. Like they had it. It's warp speed. Super, super fast. <laughs> Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> Aptly named. And then they're like, and we can tweak it to follow the variants. Mm-hmm. But they're not. Like, I mean, maybe eventually they will, but we're two years in and they haven't, they haven't done that yet. And so given that this variant is 
different than the one that the vaccine was originally engineered for, mm -hmm. that, that probably also makes it harder for Fauci to accumulate that data. Well, yeah, and one of the problems, as I understand it, is that the sample size in children is really difficult to get to a good place because severe COVID is very rare right. in young children. Mm -hmm. So just to get a sample size and then compare groups, um, that's a like control groups to compare it to, is a really difficult thing with children. And that's another thing for parents who follow this really closely and are sort of in the granular details of the studies that makes them nervous, and I would say reasonably so. I mean, we're not able to, to test this in ways that people are comfortable with. So it makes sense. I mean, if, if you want to do it for your child, do it. Um, but I think not pouring an immense amount of state resources into something, I, again, like it shouldn't be a, a controversial decision. Right. There are, if, if you're going to spend money on child welfare, yes, on child health, uh, there are a lot, a lot of ways you can do it that are going to have a lot more demonstrable you know, upsides for and kids. This, by the way, is all set against the backdrop of Fauci, who has two doses of the vaccine and two boosters. I believe he has two boosters having COVID right now, which whatever well, he was testifying with COVID, right? Yeah. Hanging in. And so. exactly. And, and what, he'll do the whole. It would have been worse without the vaccine. Whatever you think and of he Fauci. Might be right. it's, I mean, statistically, he's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. You don't know about individual cases, but yeah. Whatever you think of Fauci, it's again, that is a, a hit to this idea that everybody, like when we talk about vaccines, we have meant one very particular thing for the history of vaccine technology. And if it's unthinkable, if you had told somebody back in 2019 when this was all being developed and you know the, the narrative was that we, this, is our, this is our key, this is it, that somebody would, be, uh, would have four doses of the vaccine and would still catch COVID, it would have been, everyone would have been right. really confused. We would have been like, then what are we doing? We used to call those breakthrough cases. Yeah. But we don't really even call them that now. We just no. call them cases. Just cases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, we've, we've both had COVID since being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. yeah. It happens. Uh, it happens. And uh, hope everybody is staying safe out there. Yeah. I got mine in style, though. How, how'd you get yours? I don't know. I actually, I actually don't know. Yours stuff. was really easy, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, if someone like, did tracking and was like, all right, Ryan, where have you been? Let's see, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> <laughs> At a fish show. Oh, man. Well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Yesterday, the city of Washington unveiled a newly renamed street outside of the embassy of Saudi Arabia. Take a look. So it will now be known as Jamal Khashoggi Way. This is uh, this is obviously to commemorate the uh, the journal, journalist and activist Jamal Khashoggi, who was uh, butchered uh, by the uh, Saudi government in a consulate in Istanbul, uh, at the orders of at Mohammed the orders of Mohammed uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin uh, Salman. He was a critic of uh, of MBS. He was a a part a columnist for the Washington Post. This comes uh, just ahead of a Biden trip to Saudi Arabia, uh, which is it. Interesting, but kind of coincidental timing, but it kind of sh shows kind of who, who's winning here. Like uh, Jamal gets a street, uh, MBS is going to, not only is he not facing accountability, he's getting a meeting with 
the president. I mean, he's going to get a, a willing customer, basically. And it's it's an interesting question because the killing of Khashoggi became a, a talking point in the campaign, specifically for Joe Biden. And it's become the, the anti-Saudi rallying cry, I think, for a lot of Democrats. And in a way that, I mean, I've always thought felt extremely virtue signally. Um, and I think this totally bears it out. Just the, the theatrics with which a lot of Democrats in particular leveraged the Khashoggi talking point. This is a good example um, as to the, the fact that that was politically expedient for them, but not uh, necessarily uh, entirely genuine, um, because here Joe Biden is going to Saudi Arabia after talking very tough about MBS on the campaign trail, um, and, and he's going to go uh, look for oil. And I think there was no doubt some virtue signaling, but I also think some of it was was real in this sense. So there had been a push for years among uh, Democrats to try to uh, wind down U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen that wasn't really getting, it wasn't getting over the top. And it was only after Khashoggi was killed that that, that moved forward, the War Powers Resolution to end that moved forward. And I think one of the one of the things that's real about this for people in Washington is they don't know the Yemenis people, who, the hundreds of thousands of people dying in Yemen mm -hmm. as a result of this war. But a lot of them knew Khashoggi. Like, I've, I've mentioned this before. I, I had lunch with him like three weeks before he was, he was chopped to pieces in, in, this, in this consulate. He was a, a charismatic figure. He was, and so to see, to see that happen to him, I think there was something in Washington, and, and Republicans had a, a similar reaction to say, oh, no, 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 no. Like, the, the, the butchering is of Ye Yemenis. Like, he is kind of one of us in a way. Like, he's Washington, a Virginia resident, like a kind of somebody who's known in Washington. Like, you don't do this to an American resident. You don't do this to somebody that we have met personally. And you have now crossed the line into barbarism. And I, I think there's a lot problematic with that, that thinking about human lives. Uh, but I also think it's real, like that, that people, you know, have a reaction that is different when it's somebody that they know compared to strangers in a, in a strange land. Definitely. I also think the mounting evidence of Saudi involvement in 9-11 is cracking the foundation. Um, mm -hmm. the, the more that we learn about that, the, the more that I think the political establishment in Washington has a, a reason to start taking money from other people, uh, because mm -hmm. that's how this really works. When you see people being apologists in Washington for different groups, um, there's people in their ear making money from them, uh, foreign actors, and there's, there's people in their ear making money from them, or they themselves are making money from them, or their allies in ways yeah. that influence the, the discourse. Um, and in fact, on that note, uh, we should talk about new evidence in the mm -hmm. case of Shireen, uh, Shireen Akla, who's an American, uh, a journalist, a Christian, and appears to have been murdered uh, by the IDF. Right. And so the Washington Post is the latest uh, to have a, a forensic investigation into uh, the killing of, of uh, Shireen Abu Akleh in this, uh, outside of this Janine refugee camp. And they have found what, what others have found since then, CNN before them. Uh, CNN, uh, was, it was extremely consequential, I think, that CNN uh, found this. But it's just as, and also very important that The Washington Post is willing to run, to run this type of examination. Basically, they find that uh, the audio, visual, and eyewitness uh, reports uh, show 
that it was uh, IDF. It was an IDF soldier who who shot uh, Shireen Akleh in, in the face while she was wearing a giant press badge. As a Palestinian American journalist, uh, you know, it, it's a, the 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 evidence now is is beyond uh, you know something that you can refute. The Washington Post respond. Washington Post editorial board, which to its credit has crusaded against Saudi Arabia for the killing of its columnist. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, let's put that up real quickly. I want to I'll read from this. This is from the uh, Washington Post editorial. They said, the Post investigation is also noteworthy for what it did not uncover. So this, this is them dragging their own reporting. Proof that a soldier targeted Ms. Abu Akleh because she was a journalist, which Israel has always denied. Still less did the Post report show that she was, quote, assassinated in cold blood as the Qatar-owned Al Jazeera declared within hours of her death. Israel, within a day of May 11th, walked back its initial denials and now acknowledges its troops' possible fault. And then they, and then they write, I don't have the exact quote there, but then they say, all of this could have been avoided if there had not been uh, you know, killings done by Palestinians of Israelis. So they're saying that well, okay, maybe the Israelis did kill Akhli, mm-hmm. but actually it was the fault of other Palestinians who are not her, who did things that are, are condemnable and deplorable, that forced the hand of the Israelis. Also, can we pause on the Qatar-owned Al Jazeera? Does the Washington Post like to be called the Bezos-owned Washington Post? No, I'm fine with both, though, to be honest it's with fine. you. Fine, yes. But yeah, it, well, let, they don't fine, like it. Fine, <laughs> Right. Yeah, let, no, it's double standard. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and we covered this uh, when it was still breaking news as the details were coming in. And I mean, I'm, people know I'm conservative, I'm pro-Israel. I don't think those things necessarily have to go together, but they do for me. And I was very much in the camp that, you know, we don't know what happened here. We should wait for evidence to come out. And in fact, we've now had a couple of weeks. The evidence has come out and Israel has yet to mount a, a, a counter argument or a defense that is as convincing as the video and audio analyses that media outlets, CNN, Washington Post, Bellingcat did one. And you right. said, I think, Ryan, you tweeted like if Bellingcat, yeah. if even the so, CIA, yeah. <laughs> like they, even they think they knew what happened here. Um, and so there's there's really the evidence is is clearly stacked on one side of this conversation. And given who Akla was, the the lack of, I think, concern, um, not just on the right, but in American politics in general, is disappointing. It's not surprising, I don't think, given the interests in, at, at stake here. But, um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think that it's right to uh, just sort of brush this to right. a, a secondary news story. And what are the chances that we will get a Shireen Abu Akleh way in front of the Israeli embassy? Like, what are the, what are the chances? Oh, that's not, yeah, that's not happening. Right, but, like, why not? Like, it, it, it's, it's fascinating that that, it, that that won't happen. And further, the, the posts had, like, eight different offensive things in, like, four sentences there. The wording was like, really bad. And one of them, they say... The critics of uh, Israel have just not given them any credit uh, for acknowledging X, Y, and Z. Israel lied every step of the way with their firm denials and put out misleading information to try to back up their denials. The only time that, that they have backed off of their claims were when video and other forensic information emerged that just flatly contradicted what they said. And yep. So then they would back up a little bit and say, okay, that's not 
okay, we're backing off this, now we, now we say that this, and then they would back off that, and they would back off that. And the Post wants them to get enormous amounts of credit for that, for having their lies exposed and admitting that the lies were exposed. Uh, and, and, and then now they want to find refuge in, well, we don't know the particular motive of the particular IDF sniper who put a bullet in her face. Like, wh what kind of proof would exist? Like you'd, like, you'd have to have a recording of the internal monologue of the soldier while they're aiming at Akleh? Yeah. The or you'd have to have, I guess, what do they expect? That there's going to be some memo that says, what well, you need to find journalists and kill them outside this. That, that's not going to exist. And if you set the standard of proof there, then you're always going to find uh, them innocent. It's, it's, it's the bullet patterns, the circumstances of the shooting make it look really deliberate. If, mm -hmm. you, if you look at how many shots were fired, if you look at where they were concentrated, um, it, it obviously looks deliberate, which is hard to reconcile with the fact that they were clearly identified as press and that uh, the, the places where Palestinian forces may have been firing just don't comport with right. what we know about. Like, it, it would have been very difficult to mistake um, where the Palestinians were firing as a threat to where the IDF was in that right. case. And all of these analyses bear it out with, like, literal measurements. Right. Um, and 180 meters. Right. 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 So you'd have, and so you have to be looking through a scope at 180 meters and being able to see well enough that you can see her face, but you can't see press. Right. Well, it's Written not she had a front helmet. And back. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. No, and you it, had it to miss the helmet sense. in order to uh, perform this execution. So, yeah. No, it, it doesn't make sense at all. I, st I still think it would probably be helpful to uh, have an independent or at least turn the bullet over to the United States um, sure. and have yeah. that analysis, uh, which has not happened so far. Uh, but all that is to say, it doesn't justify anything and it doesn't make this uh, any less likely to have been deliberate on the part of this IDF soldier. Um, whether it reflects something broader is a different question. Um, but we, we have a, enough evidence right now to say this, this American journalist, uh, her fate was, was tragic, right. unfortunate, and unjust. And my guess, I bet a soldier goes down for this. I know. I, I would they're guess gonna, the they're going to throw same somebody thing. under the bus here. Yep, yeah. I would guess. They'll, they'll do six months. Well, somebody might really deserve to be thrown right. under the bus as an individual. I think clearly. Right. Right. All right. Well, we will have more rising for you uh, right after this. Well, Hunter Biden is back in the news, but uh, not really if you're paying attention to the legacy media. You probably missed this story. Uh, here's the Washington Examiner headline. The moment Hunter Biden tells his father he will do anything he tells him to. So the moment Hunter Biden says his father will do anything he tells him to, you can hear that actually um, on tape. I think we have a clip of that that we can play right now. We'll talk about um, anything that I want him to, that he believes in. If I say this is important to me, hmm. then he will work a way in which to make it a part of his, of his platform. Mm. My dad respects me more than he respects anyone in the world, and I know that to be certain. Mm. So it is not going to be about whether my dad thinks it's going to affect his politics. It, no, it won't. It's not going to be whether or not he's going to be embarrassed. I mean, he never will. Mm. It's not going to, I'm, all of those concerns that you have with all of the people that you know, mm. that, are in the, that are the children of, mm. I have none of them. Yes, the lack of embarrassment is certainly relevant. Andrew Kerr, the reporter on that byline, he's an investigative reporter at the Washington Examiner, is joining us now to discuss the situation further. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So this audio is is key. I mean, it's kind of saying the quiet part out loud. It's quiet, kind of saying what everybody already knows. You don't go to lobbying into lobbying, and you're not successful in lobbying unless you have the ear of people in power. And if your last name is Biden, that would mean Joe Biden. But Andrew, what do we know about the timeline of this audio? When is it from? What's the context? Who's he talking to? Tell us more um, from your reporting. Yeah. So this is a uh, uh, was recorded in early December 2018. So about five months before Joe Biden announced his uh, candidacy for president in uh, April 2019. Um, this is a 77-minute recording. Uh, we pulled it from a copy of uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. Mm. It was actually from a uh, password-protected uh, uh, backup of his um, iPhone XS. Uh, we're, we've been working with a former Secret Service agent, his name is Gus Dimitrilos, uh, and he was able to locate the password uh, to that 28-gig uh, that backup. Um, on the laptop. And so there's just a whole host of new uh, files that we've been going through, uh, including this recording. Um, Hunter is talking with a British artist named Philippa Horan. Um, and this was in the throes of his addiction to crack cocaine. Uh, mm. So um, it very well could be that he was um, you know, exaggerating the influence that he has with his father. Uh, we did ask the White House um, you know, what Hunter said that he was uh, you know, directly involved in the months leading up to Joe Biden's presidential candidacy, um, you know, talking about being involved in political planning discussions, sex from this uh, new trove of documents show, uh, but they didn't answer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty fascinating recording just seeing how candor he was with, you know, just saying that essentially, if it's an important issue to me, then my dad is going to make it uh, a part of his political platform. That's how you sell lobbying services, yeah. How you market. <laughs> right. And in that, the context of that conversation, he's talking about drug treatment, right? Yeah, um, uh, we uploaded about seven minutes of the conversation, but uh, uh, you know, the whole recording is 77 minutes. And he does talk about his, uh, his ongoing addiction to crack cocaine. He's uh, um, uh, actually, at one point, he sort of justifies you know, his, uh, his continued use of the substance, uh, you know, saying that maybe this is the best thing that ever happened to me and this can you know, put me down the pathway of turning in me into the man that uh, my father you know, believes that I am. Um, you know, that, that, I mean, he had a horrible addiction. It's just really clear, you know, looking through the drive. I mean, he was just, uh, I mean, he was really in it deep. Um, but yeah, I mean, still, it, you know, what the, the tape that you just showed, um, you know, he, he did make the claim that, yeah, I, I, dad will do anything that I want, uh, mm -hmm. want him to. Uh, any, any hints you can give us about what else uh, you've, you guys have found so far in here? Because it's a fascinating story about finding this the iPhone backup that was, you know, had it in, encrypted and you needed a password and then and your, your cyber guy managed to find the password um, somewhere else and the computer tried it. Obviously, it, it worked and it unlocked it. Any, anything else that uh, you can tease for us? Yeah, so we did another story uh, uh, this week. Um, uh, there's an incident in um, uh, October 2018 where uh, Haley Biden, Hallie Biden, who's uh, Hunter Biden's sister-in-law, um, that they were having a sexual relationship with, uh, discarded one of his, uh, a, a handgun that he owned near a high school in Delaware. And um, you, this incident has been report, reported elsewhere, but in this cache of new documents, uh, there's a lengthy text exchange um, on the day of that incident where uh, Hunter is just railing against uh, Hallie uh, for, uh, for taking his gun from his unlocked car and throwing it in a, chat, in a trash can near a, near Delaware High School. He's saying that you're making me out to be, quote, an abusive pedophile with homicidal tendencies. 
that this is now in the hands of the FBI. He said, I'm never going to recover from this. Um, you've been totally irresponsible. And you know, on the other side of the conversation, Hallie is like, look, I was scared for you. I thought that you were going to, you know, use this gun. I was scared for your life. I just, you know, your kids were around. I was just really scared. And I, and, and I'm sorry. I just like, you know, acted on a knee jerk reaction. So it's a really, um, it's, it's a bizarre and, uh, and, uh, illuminating conversation that they had. And what's so interesting about that, um, that incident is that, uh, Hunter claimed in other texts in the laptop that the secret service got involved and Politico reported on this, uh, last year. And the secret service is now saying that, you know, we have no records, um, that, uh, of, of of any involvement in this incident. So, you know, we have, a, you know, a gun being discarded near high school and it was just swept under the rug. Uh, so um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, if we can find anything more on that, um, you know, talk to some more, some more folks uh, to try to, you know, find out what exactly happened that we had this incident that, you know, supposedly the Delaware State Police, the FBI, and according to Hunter, the uh, Secret Service were involved and then um, it was all swept under the rug. Yeah, I was going to say Hunter Biden's wrong on, on that point. It wasn't the end of him. It definitely didn't ruin him. Uh, there's barely been a, a peep in the media about the gun story. Um, Andrew, do we know why in the all the context you have in these full recordings, do we know why these conversations were being recorded? I'm trying to think of you know why that Hunter Biden would have a recording of this conversation with the artist and why he would have a recording, an audio recording of this conversation with Hallie Biden. Is there any indication of why these were being recorded um, in the full tapes? Hunter was a prolific documentarian of his own life. I think that's the, the best way of, of putting it. He constantly is filming himself, uh, talking, having conversations with people, uh, having, uh, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of illicit content on the drive. He's just, I've <laughs> never really seen anything like it. Someone just, uh, you know, with, with such an addiction to, to videotaping themselves. Um, yeah, there's a lot of videos of him just like kind of staring at himself on the phone. Uh, you know, uh, through the uh, the uh, a selfie um, camera. So, yeah, I mean, as far as the context of why he decided to record this particular conversation, it it's on. I, he doesn't really say why he's recording it, but um, about 20 minutes into the conversation, he actually does uh, tell the woman that he's talking to, this British artist, uh, Philippa Haran, that you know, yeah, oh yeah, by the way, I am recording this conversation. So, mm. you know, this wasn't like secretly taped or anything. You know, the people that are around Hunter. Uh, many times knew that he was uh, that he was recording them. And so now that you have access to this kind of this new backup of a phone on this laptop, I'm wondering if we might start to be able to unravel another mystery here. And I don't know if we could we could put this up here. There was a, there was this tantalizing story in the Daily Mail uh, back in when was this uh, August of 2021 that reported on a video that. Showed, on, showed up on Hunter's laptop in which he's telling a story in January of 2019. And the story he's telling is about the summer of 2018, where he went on this just absolutely, you know, coincides with some of your timeline here. He goes on this absolutely massive, uh, like 10-day, 18-day, something long bender in, in Las Vegas. And it ends with him uh, and I can, I'll read a quote from Hunter. He says, so I went out to the hot tub by myself. These are $10,000 a night places he's staying at in Vegas, which hangs over the edge of the effing top floor with glass. It's ridiculous. And I'm sitting there and that's the last thing I remember. I don't ever pass out ever. So, so he basically passes out in this hot tub. He, he comes to and there is a basically a Russian sex worker, he says, you know, who's in the 
hotel room with some other people who he'd been hanging out with. And she and he suspects that she then took his laptop. So this is summer of 2018. And he's and so in January, you know, before all this comes out, he's relaying this story that that a, that a Russian sex worker had taken his laptop. And the, the Daily Mail speculates that Hunter would be the obvious would be an obvious, like easy target of a foreign surveillance mm-hmm. operation like what? You don't, you don't have to go far to try to figure out what his weakness might be, like how you're, how you're going to kind of get to him. And so then it's, you, you and I were just talking, it was the spring of 2019 that this uh, computer store says that it wound up with, with a laptop. Uh, are we certain that these are different laptops? What do we know about this story of this Russian sex worker who, uh, according to Hunter in this recorded video, Took, took a laptop. Have we gotten that one yet? Is that the one that we have now? Uh, and is there anything on your drive that can shed any additional light on this? And I think, because there's two questions. There's one, the content of the laptops and it is, is relevant and explains a lot about foreign influence lobbying and about, the, and about you know, his relationship with the Biden administration. But then separately, there's some foreign policy questions to ask or, about whether or not that had anything to do with how some of this got out. Yeah, so um, a couple things. So on the, in regards to more information about that incident in Las Vegas, um, I have nothing to add to that right now. Um, I do want to stress that it's uh, the, the just amount of content on, on this mm-hmm. drive is, uh, is quite overwhelming. I mean, you could spend, I'm not exaggerating, half a year full time just kind of going through everything and cross-referencing it. Um, as far as, is, do we have the laptop that the uh, Russian escort reportedly uh, took in uh summer 2018 no the uh the the drive that we have uh the uh last use of uh the the last user file generated date is uh mid-march 2019 so that was the last time that this particular drive was used um and the story goes is that hunter you took this computer to a delaware repair shop in april 2019 um i if i recall correctly the uh the repair quote that the dated repair quote that Hunter signed authorizing the lap, the repair shop store owner to pull data from the drive to recover it said that there was some water damage on these drives. Um, so uh, I, I want to stress that we have uh, the New York Post, the, the first day of this story back in October 2020, produced a, a signed repair quote that, Hunter, that contains Hunter Biden's signature and it's dated uh, you know, the day they say that Hunter dropped it off at the laptop repair shop. And the, uh, the quote says that, you know, if you don't uh, come and pick it up within X amount of days, then we'll treat this as abandoned property. Hunter Biden has, one, never even been asked this in any direct interview that he's had with any uh, reporters. And two, he's just never addressed uh, through his lawyers or, or directly uh, anybody that's asked him, you know, hey, did you sign this piece of paper authorizing this repair shop to take your data and saying that if you don't pick it up within a certain time, we'll treat it as abandoned property. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of media malfeasance there. People that have gotten Hunter on camera have never thought to ask him about that, which I think is irresponsible. And I tried so many times to ask his lawyer, um, hey, uh, is this legitimate? Because what Hunter could really, what they could really easily do is just say, no, he never signed that that document. And then we can have a serious discussion about whether or not he, you know, this laptop repair shop uh story is is true or not but in my eyes yes it's 100 percent um he did drop it off at the at the um at the repair shop he didn't pick it up and then um the repair shop owner gave a copy of it to the fbi and then he also gave it to 
uh, Rudy Giuliani's team, which in hindsight probably should have given it to someone else. Uh, Rudy made a lot of mistakes in my opinion. Uh, but you know what happened happened. But yeah, the um, but yeah that uh, that point that there was a, the last file in March yeah. coming. So that's like eight months after that bender in 2018. So that means there yeah. might be another laptop out there mm-hmm. that somewhere. Yeah. So our um, uh, um, cyber forensics expert that we've been working with, he, um, the we did a story a few weeks ago saying, and you know, reporting on his conclusion that. You know, this laptop is 100% authentic, and Hunter is, is the only person that's capable of producing all the records in the uh, that are contained within this drive. You know, because we have credit card information, uh, uh, personal identification cards, you know, passports, and and driver's licenses, and you know, kind of the whole shebang. And he actually was able to find records on the drive uh, with um, uh, Apple um, account login information. And there's this, uh, you know, like dozens of uh, Apple devices that that were linked to Hunter's iCloud account. So we know that he, he owned a, a substantial amount of, uh, of Apple devices. And so it's totally plausible that he could have had you know, numerous laptops that, <laughs> that could, be, could have been taken by you know, Russian escorts and you know, could be you know, floating around in the nether now. Andrew Kerr, this is really great reporting. Thank you so much for coming on the program to break it all down. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, you can read that in the Washington Examiner and we will have more rising for you right after this. Now, we have pivotal elections coming up this weekend in both France and in Colombia, as well as unrest rocking Ecuador. We're going to talk about all of that in a second. We're joined by a Paris-based independent journalist, my former colleague, uh, Cole Stangler. Welcome, Cole. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And also journalist and international editor at El Cuidadano. Is that, how, how, do I, how, do I, how do I say that, Dennis? El Ciudadano. El Ciudadano. Uh, Dennis uh, Rogatyuk joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you very much, Ryan. And so, so Cole, let's start with the, uh, with the French election. So uh, the world saw, the world breathed its sigh of relief when Emmanuel Macron, uh, you know, fended off the, uh, the right, right-wing candidate, Marine Le Pen, recently, and the world kind of moved on from there. In France, though, something as you've written recently in the New York Times, something rather extraordinary happened. Uh, they, the entire left has gotten together in a, in a coalition. And it, what's going on? Like, why, why, why are we caring about France again? I thought we were done. Yeah, so, it, it, and, you know, for the last, the last few election cycles, the legislative elections have been something uh, of an afterthought. Um, you have the presidential election, and then uh, a few weeks later, you had the legislative elections. So uh, the president, uh, in order to, to approve his agenda, needs to have, uh, or it's, it's better for him to have a, an absolute majority in parliament. So this is the election that we're talking about right now, these legislative elections to determine control uh, of the National Assembly, control uh, of, of that critical house, that chamber uh, of parliament in France. And so after this um, defeat, pretty, pretty significant defeat for the left in the presidential election, uh, Parties essentially uh, got together, uh, coalescing around one political force in particular, which is La France Insoumise, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who almost qualified himself for the second round of that presidential election. Uh, the forces have coalesced around uh, Mélenchon and La France Insoumise, um, and they were able to put together a united slate of candidates uh, for the first time uh, since 1997 uh, in France. So the communists, La France Insoumise, the socialists, and the Greens all running in this united coalition. Um, and what we saw in the first round of this two-round legislative vote 
uh, was the left have a, had a pretty strong score running essentially neck and neck with Macron's party. And now as we're heading into the second round uh, on Sunday, you know, there is an outside chance that they could actually have a majority. It's unlikely, um, but an outside chance at winning a majority of their own on the left, which would mean you'd have a left wing prime minister. In this case, Jean-Luc Mélenchon says he wants to serve a, a, as prime minister. Even if they don't get that uh, majority of their own on the left, the, the sort of second prize would be depriving uh, Macron of an absolute majority. So in, in, in English, what we call a hung parliament, a situation in which Macron is governing essentially by uh, a relative majority, as they say in France, so cobbling together support from other parties to govern. And if the left does that, um, you know, that's still a pretty significant accomplishment given where, given where things were, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago even. And the benefit of having both of you two on to talk about this at the same time is that there's a sort of transformational uh, or there's a chance for a transformational change to happen in Colombia. So, Dennis, I want to read you. This is how The Washington Post is framing it in an article. They say, Colombia will hold the presidential election on Sunday, unlike any other in its history. Voters in Latin America's third largest country have demanded change, rejecting a political establishment that has held power here for generations. Regardless of who wins, the new president will herald the start of a potentially transformative era. But will the historically conservative country select its first leftist president or will it take a gamble on a political outsider? Two, two part question. One, do you think that description is apt? Is it, is it accurately capturing the dynamics here? And then two, what do you expect to play out in the next few days? Well, Emily, I believe that uh, it is uh, it is an error to consider the current, the right wing uh, candidate Rodolfo Hernandez to be some kind of an anti-establishment figure, as many um, I'd say media sources, uh, both uh, say in Colombia and outside of Colombia, have uh, basically called him the, the Donald Trump uh, of, the, of the country, as he is a is a multimillionaire who's made his fortune in construction and in and in real estate. He ran. He ran on a uh, on a basically on a pro business uh, platform, and in the last uh, in the last several several weeks in preparation for the second round, he's basically been courting the votes of the traditional uh, right wing basis, and very much as a rejecting all you know the the program and the the, pro the program and the uh, main proposals made by uh, Gustavo Petro. And the, enti the entirety of the country's traditional uh, right-wing forces, so, those, so uh, the, what would you call the, the electoral base of, uh, of ex-president Alvaro Uribe, has basically joined ranks with him, both the political uh, leaders and also, uh, and, and also uh, voters. So he effectively Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, although although he although he is uh, sort of running on a platform uh, against corruption, or, or according to what he says, against corruption, uh, he is in fact um, basically represents uh, the same kind of uh, political political mentality as the country's uh, economic elite. So really, this is this is still a battle between a uh, a genuine kind of uh, left-wing anti-establishment figure like Gustavo Petro and the continuation of the of the old order, uh, um, in the of the old order with the um, with Rodolfo Hernandez as his new face. Uh, now, uh, to, to answer your to, to your second question, I believe. Um, uh, well, th this will be an extremely uh, tight uh, race, as, as uh, the latest latest polls have basically showed the two candidates to be uh, to be to be neck and neck. But if, if Gustavo Petro does win, he he would face an I say an even more difficult battle of trying to govern the country, 
uh, you know, lacking a majority in the in both chambers of the um, of the Colombian le legislature. But more importantly, uh, he would be forced to confront a uh, the, the Colombian state, or say the uh, you know the state which has been molded in the image and in the political policies of Alvaro Uribe. Yeah, this would be an extremely difficult uh, time for Gustavo Petro. And the anti-establishment phenomenon that we cover kind of so much on, on this program is, is really playing out in Colombia in such a pure and distillized form. There's a, a, here's a, you know, this recent TikTok from Rodolfo Hernandez that I want to, want to play here. It shows that this is the way that he's, he's been running his campaign. Let's see if we can put that up. And that's that's not like not an anomaly. Like that's how Hernandez is running his entire campaign. Like that's that's who he is. He's he's skewing a lot of uh, broadcast advertising. He's just he's called the TikTok king. He's just running stuff like that through TikTok, and it and it's got him from you know obscurity to on the brink of winning presidents. There's something there's something about the way that parties are falling apart here and institutions are falling apart that enables this to happen. And and Cole and Dennis, curious for your take on this too. But but Cole. How is this playing out in, in France? Like there, there does seem to be this connection that people across the world want to feel directly you know, with politicians outside of institutions. And what is it about that phenomenon that played into the kind of left's ability here and the left's decision here to kind of uh, come, come together? Is it Malencon that, that, that they have this connection with? Like a lot of people seem to also have a huge kind of distaste for him as well. But how, how are you seeing this phenomenon play out in these elections? And who has the best TikTok? Yeah, who, yeah who's, <laughs> how's TikTok playing out in France? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Mélenchon has certainly been, been very present on, on social media. And, you know, I think they run a very effective sort of digital uh, campaign aimed at, at mobilizing young people and getting support among young people. And if you look at the polls in the presidential election, um, you know, they, they, Mélenchon had a very good score among, among the, the young, youngest age bracket, 18 to 24. And you see that also in the legislative elections. Uh, for those who vote, uh, they vote uh, in a pretty clear majority, or just over 50%, I think, in the, in the, in the polls that we've been seeing, voted for the, the, the coalition of the left. Uh, the problem is that young people vote uh, far less in France than older people. It's really striking if you look at the age breakdown Excuse me, in, in, in the election, uh, just if you look at the, the, the polls. So you have... Uh, 18 to 24 age group breaking heavily for Mélenchon. Um, the problem is that so few of them vote. If you look at the, the top age bracket, you know, 70 plus, huge majority for Macron um, and for his party. You had this huge, uh, uh, really difference, political, you know, difference around age, which is which is pretty striking in France. And I think maybe to, to, to quickly address that, that first question you had, Ryan, I mean, I think Macron's personality is, is also really, really playing into this election here as well. Uh, you have a sort of kind of sentiment of, of um, you know, uh, frustration uh, around, around Macron, towards Macron and his policies, um, a sense that, you know, a reluctance to want to give him this majority in parliament, which um, it should be said as well, since France moved the legislative elections to occur right after the presidential elections uh, in 2001, since then, there hasn't been a single time in which the president hasn't gone on to win a majority uh, in uh, in the National Assembly. The fact that this is even up for grabs right now shows you uh, just sort of how, how uncertain um, and different the era we're living in today is. But I think 
you know, a lot of anti-Macron sentiment um, that we're seeing reflected in this election as well. And, and Dennis, just as we sort of bring this full circle, um, what is on the line in this election in Colombia? Basically, maybe another way to phrase that is, how could Colombia change pending the outcome of the election this weekend? Well, I believe that uh, Colombia basically effectively uh, has a choice as to whether to continue with the current political and economic uh, model uh, based on based on neoliberalism, based on extractivism, uh, based on this extremely close uh, cooperation with the United States, uh, based on the um, uh, really on the on the policies uh, which shaped the uh, last twenty years, and particularly the uh, you know. The state, state violence, state, state repression against uh, social movements, against uh, and again, again, and against protests, all in the name of security and stability. So that is, you know, the, the model of uh, of Uribismo on one hand side, and on, on the other hand side, you know, choose to um, choose instead a new, a new, a new path, uh, which represent, which Gustavo Petro uh, represents, and that is. Uh, is the path of implementing the uh, peace accords of the tw- of 2016 uh, with the country's uh, major uh, guerrilla forces. It means dismantling uh, the uh, you know, the states this this massive state security apparatus and you know its oversized military. It means uh, putting a, putting an end to any sort of uh, you know cooperation between the Colombian state and the country's uh, death squads and paramilitary squads. And of course. Um, the nar- uh, different uh, narco cartels, uh, which which have been proven to have uh, you know ties to various uh, uh, parts of the, of the of the Colombian state, it means embracing Latin American integration rather than just simply uh, focusing on uh, an alliance with the United States and NATO, and and of course uh, promoting and embracing new social rights for uh, the con- for the country's um, indigenous uh, minority for the for the afro-colombian minority for the uh, for the lgbti uh, community so the, the the really the contrast between the two paths uh, couldn't be starker and i believe that uh, in in the case of in the case of victory uh, the uh, case of victory for gustavo petro uh, I believe that uh, what we're going to see is that we're going to see this uh, new so-called pink tide uh, of, of progressive governments across Latin America being so being solidified. We're going to see the community of Latin American uh, Caribbean states that select being being strengthened, and this will certainly give give a major boost to the campaign of uh, Lula da Silva in Brazil to also win the presidential election at the end of the year. If all this comes to pass. Uh, Latin America will have the uh, the largest number of uh, left-wing, progressive, or center-left governments that it has ever had in its uh, in, in its history. And, and so Dennis, on on that pink tide, real quickly, can can you give us some insight into what's going on in in Ecuador? Just recently, the uh, indigenous leader of major protests there was was arrested by the the government. Has doesn't seem to have done much about the the protests. We don't have a whole lot of time, but you know, what should people know about what's going on there? Uh, well, Ecuador is currently living uh, what I believe is the you know, beginning of a, new, of a new popular uprising and mobilization against uh, the uh, right-wing government of uh, Guillermo Lasso. Uh, at, the, at the moment, uh, the main organization leading the protests is the Confederation of the, Indigen- of the Indigenous uh, Peoples and Nations, or CONAI, which is headed by Leonidas uh, Iza. Uh, the indigenous uh, pr- uh, movement is basic is effectively um, 
they're effectively protesting protesting against you know the increasing uh, increasing prices of fuel increasing price increasing food prices increasing uh, you know, uh, ins- uh, say financial and uh, financial in- insecurity against the privatization of, uh, of of sort of the key parts of the state, such as the such as the banking and oil uh, sector, against uh, job insecurity, against a whole uh, a whole sort of uh, um, list of list of factors. Uh, now, Leonidas Isa was briefly arrested by the uh, by the Ecuadorian government, but was then released after a mass after a massive response by the. Um, by the by, the Konai, by the indigenous organizations, the protests are still very much ongoing and don't seem to show any signs uh, any signs of, of subsiding. But this is a first major challenge uh, for uh, Guillermo Lasso's right wing right wing government that at the moment finds itself in the minority in the national uh, in, in the national assembly. So if it, if, it, if it results to more oppression, to more uh, state to more st- state violence, um, then we could actually we, we could we could potentially see. Uh, a repeat of the of the 2000 and of the events of 2003, when Luci, uh, President Lucio Gutierrez was also was uh, forced out of power by by the Konai, by, by this by this uh, same uh, organization. Well, we are living through awfully interesting times, and we appreciate both of you, Dennis and Cole, helping us walk through some of it. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And we'll have more rising uh, right after this. Stick around. David Sirota is up with a new story at The Lever that makes the case that we may be in for a new era of grand bargaining if Republicans take over one or both uh, chambers of Congress, making the point that uh, Joe Biden has been pushing for you know, cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid at various times throughout his career, going way back to, what, the 1980s or so. Uh, David Sirota, who's editor-in-chief of The Lever, joins us now. Uh, David, you know, lay, lay out a little bit uh, for uh, viewers what, you're, what, you're, what you see potentially coming. So Lindsey Graham this week said that he uh, said that the Congress must do entitlement reform. And that was a big story uh, for, I don't know, one or two news cycles. And the Democrats expressed outrage at this saying, look, uh, if the Republicans win, they're going to try to cut Social Security and Medicare. Now, you can look at that reaction from Democrats as maybe the party has changed since the last time there was a Democratic president, because the last time there was a Democratic president, when the Republicans won the first midterm of that presidency, uh, the Obama-Biden administration immediately went to the so-called Simpson-Bowles Commission, which tried to create a grand bargain with Republicans uh, to cut Social Security uh, and do, quote unquote, entitlement reform. Now, so you can look at the reaction uh, to Lindsey Graham's comments this week from Democrats as, okay, maybe the party, uh, party leaders have realized that they need to push back on that idea. Or you can look at it as Graham actually yelling the quiet part out loud, telegraphing what the Republicans expect the Democratic president to do if they lose, if the Democrats lose the midterms. And I think, look, I don't know which way it's going to go. 
But I think there should be a lot of concern that if Republicans win the midterms, Joe Biden, a guy who has tried to work with Republicans for many, many decades to uh, cut Social Security and Medicare, that he may say, listen, I have to move to the quote unquote center. And my first move out of the gate is going to be another commission uh, to work with people like Lindsey Graham to try to cut uh, Social Security and Medicare. I'm not saying it's going to happen. What I'm saying is that it's clearly it's on the minds of Republicans right now. How does the rise of MMT um, factor into this debate on the left? Because that's you know something that wasn't necessarily as front in front of mind uh, back during the Simpson Bowles era. Um, and, and so, if a similar thrust were to be made both by the right and potentially a Biden administration that signals a willingness to come to the table, how how would that and not just MMT, but I guess more the 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 left's sort of economic philosophy shifts in it over the last let's say decade. How would that impact, do you think, the negotiations uh, during the Biden administration? Look, I think there's more evidence that that the Democratic Party, the mainstream, even the sort of middle of the Democratic Party, uh, learned some of the lessons, the political lessons of flirting with trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. I do think that there's evidence that the party is more unified around simply defending or even expanding the program. Uh, I think they, they went through a couple times of, I mean, in the Clinton administration and in the Obama administration of of this sort of fetishizing uh, under the banner of entitlement reform, fetishizing these uh, idea of cuts or balancing the federal budget through cuts to these programs. So I think that that has definitely changed. But I also know who Joe Biden is. Right? <laughs> I know that this is something that this is not just a kind of casual issue for him. This is something that he has been working on uh, for a very, very long time. Senate floor speeches. Uh, he was a guy who portrayed himself as the Democrat who would be willing to tell the base of his party supposedly hard truths and be willing to uh, to to work with Republicans uh, to go after so-called sacred cows. So I, I that's the question is whether he's going to revert back to that attitude, whether he's going to revert back to that those kinds of triangulating politics if the Democrats don't win. And I, I think to your point, I think the proponents of something like this will will make an inflation argument. They will try to say, hey, listen, we need to cut these programs for this, for this reason, for the debt reason, for all these reasons. And now also because of inflation. I don't think it's a it's a it's a correct argument, but I think that's politically what will happen. Right. And, and to Put an even finer point on it, David, as, as you've mentioned, there was not just Simpson Bowles, there was also what was called the Biden Commission. So while right. Biden's top staffer was the, was the lead staffer for the Simpson Bowles, Biden then chaired his own commission that tried to cut a deal, with, and his, his co-chair was Eric Cantor. Yep. So Eric Cantor. It ended so well for Eric Cantor. And, and right, and actually, <laughs> and I want to ask Emily about this too, because it did end badly for Eric Cantor, yeah. beaten by a Tea Party uh, candidate, and the entire kind of the entire Paul Ryan wing of the party is, is in retreat. Now, Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate, but just the energy is not, is not with them anymore. And so I'm curious if, if Lindsey Graham and Joe Biden sit down and say, you know what, we do want to do this. We want to cut, we want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Is the populist energy on the right now such that they would actually resist that? In the past, they resisted, resisted it because they didn't want tax cuts coming with a grand bargain. But I wonder if this time they're actually like, no, we're for spending on Medicare and yeah. spending on uh, Social Security. Now, Medicaid, they might 
they'd probably go after. Well, Mitt Romney just proposed this week basically a cash allowance, and we can debate the merits of it, but that's not something you would have seen coming out mm -hmm. of a, a child cash allowance. That's actually pretty generous, um, and that's not something you would have seen coming out of a, a Republican mm -hmm. Senate office in, in years past, probably. Uh, I don't know. I think Republicans have a similar problem on health care that Democrats have on this issue, and, and maybe I'll throw it to, to back to David on this question, in that it's hard to, like, Republicans have failed over and over again to propose any solution of their own on health care because they just, they have nothing. They really have nothing other than cronyism, um, which is what they like. And on the left, I guess I wonder if sometimes they get sucked into Simpson Bowles, sucked into Biden, because they don't have a good answer as to how do, how these programs could be made solvent, how these programs can be made so that they do benefit people 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 50 years down the road. Um, and, and I guess I'm curious how in 2024 or this moment right now, you know, post midterms, what do you think Democrats should be talking about? What is the narrative that, that should be set to counter um, what, what may be a very tempting narrative about austerity politically for somebody like Joe Biden um, or for Republicans, how should the left be talking about this? Is it, is it austerity for the, for the Pentagon? You know, where, where can we sort of find this, this money? Well, look, I, I actually think that, that progressives have had a, a, a something of a, of a good solution on, on Social Security, as an example. For a long time, there has been a pretty simple piece of legislation to lift the payroll tax cap, uh, to basically say, listen, I mean, right now, the way Social Security works is you pay Social Security taxes on the first, whatever it is, a hundred plus thousand dollars of your income, and then the cap, and then that's the cap, and then it, essentially people above that income or income above that doesn't get applied to pay taxes. So a pretty simple, easy to understand policy, which by the way, you could also argue in some ways is deflationary uh, mm. in terms of taking money out of circulation, is to simply uh, lift the cap. The problem is, is that progressives do not ha have not had support for that in, in the center corporate side of the Democratic Party. So, so the, in, in, I guess the point is, is that there needs to be a battle inside of the party to figure out what the party's actual position on on all this stuff is, and that battle still hasn't really happened. I mean, I think again, the party is is more unified than it's been around the idea of let's not cut Social Security. That doesn't mean that Joe Biden won't go try to do it, but I think as a as a whole, there's much more unity around do not cut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, to shore up the system, I do not think there is a lot of unity yet. And maybe that that's exactly what, if Biden actually went forward with another Simpson-Bowles commission, I, maybe that's what would prompt a kind of reckoning about what the party's actual position on shoring up the programs really is. Mm. Right. And, and in fact, there's, there's a bill by John Larson in Congress that has more than 200 co-sponsors that actually expands Social Security, like makes, yeah. it, makes it more generous to people. Yeah. Do you think that inflation uh, topped with this call from Lindsey Graham and, and this kind of like bubbling of austerity is drain, draining the, the energy away from what had been a lot of momentum toward expanding Social Security? 
Yeah, I look. I think inflation is affecting all of these discussions about fiscal policy, about uh, about uh, uh, these social programs. I, I I think look, Social Security is seeing one of its biggest increases, uh, cost of living increases, because it's because of inflation, uh, which I think it's good that those cost of living increases are happening. I, I think ultimately, in, in in the wider scale of things, yes. Look, there's many things that the government can do to deal with inflation. I mean, everything from cracking down, trying to crack down on corporate profiteering, uh, to tax increases on the wealthy that takes money out of circulation to reducing spending on the defense budget. I mean, just this week, uh, the Senate is pushing forward $45 billion more in defense spending than even the Biden administration is pushing. I think all of these, the, the folks in Washington are not having an honest conversation about inflation, leaving the Fed to just use a very blunt, nasty instrument of, of, of uh, interest rate uh, hikes that hurt workers. And I think that's an ideological choice. I don't, I don't think either party, frankly, has put forward an inflation agenda uh, that does anything more than try to deal with the situation by harming workers. And I think that that is going to sort itself out, whether the party leaders like it or not. In, the, in other words, there's going to be a reckoning on that separately. Yeah, when I look at some uh, Biden's messaging on fiscal policy and on, I mean, honestly, economics in general is so mixed. Like if you look at somebody like Leah Khan, it's, you know, th this is not a Biden appointee 10, 20 years ago if he had had the power to do it. Are there any other uh, signs that you've seen from Biden that suggest, um, just in terms of maybe personnel or in terms of things that he's talked about, that suggests this may truly be a different era if he were to reconvene some form of Simpson Bowles or because it's still so mixed, um, is he still telegraphing basically that he's the same old uh, Delaware credit card Joe. I mean, that's the open question. And I, we have not seen him as president with a Republican Congress. I mean, we, we, I mean we've, we haven't seen him in a situation where Republicans are going to be pushing him to go back to that old Joe Biden. I think that's why I think those comments from Lindsey Graham are so important, which to me, they say they expect him to revert back to that, that they expect the media narrative to blame, somehow blame, which I think is ridiculous, but somehow blame the midterm election losses on the base of the Democratic Party, the so-called, you know, the left, uh, and that coming out of that election, Biden will say, okay, all I got to do is go back and be the old pre-2020 election Joe Biden, the Joe Biden who always wants to cut a deal with Republicans and show my own party's base that I'm willing to stomp on them. Uh, the, the open question is, I can't answer it. The open question is, will Joe Biden do that or has he changed or has he at least under, does he at least understand that politics, the forces on him, the way politics works in America has fundamentally changed since that old triangulating era? I don't know. Yeah. And we'll find out. Interesting question. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to both of you. And we'll have more rising right after this. Well, a new USA Today and Suffolk University poll finds that President Biden's approval rating is at 39%, get this, 47%, quote, strongly disapprove of the job President Biden is doing. Ryan, what do you make of these numbers? You actually joked before we got started, is that is that an improvement? Right, 39, <laughs> might, might be up, I don't know. I mean, 39, no. though, that's, he's in the tank in a midterm year. The 47% strongly approve is, is a stunning number because... It's strongly disapprove, and actually the number is only 16% right. strongly approve. It's 16% it's with a strong opinion, that's 
closer to normal. Like yep. often you'll have 16% strongly approved, 20% strongly disapproved, and then the others are somewhat, somewhat on each side. Right. To have almost half the country with a strong opinion. A polarized strong opinion. Makes it, although I don't know how polarized it is because I bet that's a, there's a good chunk of Democrats in there. Yeah, we're, oh, yeah. we're still going to vote for Democratic candidates in the House if they vote and would still vote for Biden if he ran again. And because they strongly disapprove of whoever his opponent is, even more than they strongly disapprove of him, which is such a brutal system for, peop for voters to yeah. say that your choice is between someone you strongly disapprove of and someone you even more strongly disapprove of. Yeah. Yeah, and I meant it in the sense that like they're at that far pole of being strongly disappointed. That's you're, I think you're totally right to uh, pull that number out because, like you said, 16% is way more right. normal for those. Um, those I guess they're, they're usually on the far ends of the spectrum, numbers like that. But more than 7 in 10, so 71% say the U.S. is on the wrong track. Only 16%, there's that 60% again, say the country is headed in the right direction. To your point, even most Democrats say the country Countries on the wrong track, 46 to 34 um, percent, and three of four independents and nearly every Republican agrees with that sentiment. The country is on the wrong track. My question for you is: There are a couple of big pieces of legislation pending in Congress right now. There's the antitrust bill, and more importantly, the negotiations over the gun bill. Um, does any of that in a midterm year? help bring the, the rising tide that lifts all boats mm -hmm. and the presidential approval number, does that do anything to Joe Biden's approval? Or is it really all, do you think, wrapped up in inflation at this point? Well, there's also the Build Back Better light. That's, that's right, that's, that's right. still being kicked around in the background. Yep. So if, if Democrats did deliver on antitrust, uh, put, push through this you know, gun legislation, both of those are bipartisan yep. things, and then, and then they uh, come in at the end with five, six hundred billion dollar um, version of Build Back Better that reduces drug prices. That's still a lot, by the way. And to so, your point, Bernie Sanders time. dragged that that standard for mm -hmm. what would be acceptable um, way up. What way that, up. And I think what that would do, it wouldn't necessarily make people feel better immediately. Mm -hmm. And also this comes in the context of a stock market wipeout. So I think some of that is playing into these these yes. numbers. People are answering these questions while they're watching their 401ks disappear. But I think if you did deliver on some actual legislative agenda items, what it would do is it would give people a reason then to say, you know what, I am going to vote in these midterms. I am going to phone bank. Fine. Like, okay, I see you're at least trying. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a sense among a lot of Democratic voters who have spent since, 20, since the election of 2016 doing everything they could to resist Trump, to elect Democrats, give them the House in 2018, a trifecta in 2020, they want a sense that they're at least trying. Right. Failure, okay, fine, but please try <laughs> first. And so it just being told Manchin and Cinema, what can we do, I think is extremely demoralizing. And so if they actually get some things accomplished, then I think you could see people say, okay, let's do this. And it, also in this poll, fascinating number, asked who they would support in the midterms, it was 40% for Democrats, 40% for Republicans. You, you would not, in, in previous years, if you had a president who's at 39 approval and 47% strongly disapproval, mm. those numbers would be like 30, 30 to 50 or something. Like just, yeah. just a wipeout for mm -hmm. the party. Yet despite how angry people are, you still have this 
40 to 40. Now, because of the structure of the House, that's still enough uh, you know, to give Republicans the House. But those are not wipe. Those aren't, those aren't wipe out numbers that you would expect from how pissed people are. So speaking of how pissed people are, and speaking of how this would affect things right now, Jeff Stein tweeted that White House officials are exploring sending Americans rebate cards to offset gas costs, um, and they ran into another problem: the chips shortage, which meant the U.S. couldn't physically produce enough cards to make the plan work, even if lawmakers tried to do it, per Stein's sources. The, it's, it's too sad to laugh at, honestly. It's this vicious cycle of incompetence on the part of our government, even when they want to do something. They have tied their own hands with the levels of incompetence such that they can't even do what they want to do. This is, and this, this is the chip shortage before China moves on Taiwan. Yeah. Where all the chips are yeah. And then, but also, like, why does everything got to be so complicated? Why does everything have to be on a card? Just, we have, like, 100-plus million people have direct deposit already, or some, some massive number of people have direct deposit with the IRS already because of their card. Just do it there or uh, send people a check. Mm -hmm. Like, we have paper still. Well, we also just have the infrastructure from having done all of this. Well, just, but I guess they wanted to make it specifically that you can only spend it at a gas station or something. Yep. Why? Like, why has it got to be so complicated? Just put <laughs> so that people don't waste the money. Just put gas drugs. in the memo. <laughs> right there, gasoline. Gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> put it in the memo. Government gasoline. Yeah. And if, if if you spend it on something different, go ahead, spend it on something different. That's. Not your money to make that decision. Sure it is. <laughs> I mean, as a as a Demo as like a, a as a like member of a democratic society, if that's what we decide to do. Right. Although, if we we're deciding that we should offset gas prices in particular, then we should. Although everybody is that. suffering from gas prices, even if you don't have a car. Absolutely. Because like, the, the price of fuel and energy is is filtering through the entire economy. Absolutely. So in some ways, be like, well, I'm still paying extra, even though even 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 though I don't have to fill up a car. like. Well, and this, again, speaking of vicious cycles, the question becomes with Build Back Better Light and with uh, gas rebates, are we not making inflation worse? Is there not a serious chance that we're, instead of actually, we're, we're giving short-term relief and creating an, an even worse longer-term problem? Cer certainly that is, that, that's a risk. Yeah. Uh, Biden might just be better off just like, threatening to throw the oil executives in jail. Just do that. <laughs> like, look, there's, there's, there, there is, there's a glut of oil out there right now. Uh, lower your prices or you're going to jail. You could try that. How about that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think Emily agrees. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for jailing crony capitalists who deserve to be jailed. There we go. This is the Lock Father's Day message from uh, Rising Fridays. Lock them up. Yeah. Lock them up. <laughs> or just say, look, we're going to investigate you. If we find that there was price fixing that, that exploited this moment, then we're going to lock you up. We'll give you a fair trial first. Mm -hmm. I, I'll, also, I'd love to see a CEO in front of any jury right now. It's a a, an, an Exxon CEO or any, any, any oil company CEO going before a jury I just, that's, that's spending $6 a gallon to drive to the jury pool. Maybe like, when, when can we when can we rule on this? Maybe you should have to go in front of a jury to testify as to why you deserve subsidies, huh? federal subsidies in the future. That we can agree on. Yeah, I hope it'd be better than the uh, more watched, maybe even than Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. No way. I do like the way you said 
We'll give you a fair trial. First. <laughs> a fair trial. <laughs> all right. Well, we hope you all have a happy Father's Day weekend. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check that out. Enjoy. Like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all those things. Have a good weekend. See you, everyone.